Remain standing as we read the text from Matthew chapter 5, I'm sorry, Matthew 10, there it goes again, Uh, I hope I'm going to the right place, Matthew chapter 10, as we continue where we left off last Lord's Day, or the last time we uh, looked at this passage, which has now been a few weeks. I'll begin at verse 1 through verse 8, now hear the word of God. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve sent out, Jesus sent out, and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received freely give. Our gracious Father, we ask that your spirit would attend the preaching of this word, that this would be the message to our hearts and to this congregation this day, and take it and individually apply it to our lives to give us a greater assurance of your calling and vocation with which you have called each one of us in the body of Christ. We pray if there's anyone here that does not know that certainty or even the certainty of Christ as his Lord, We pray this day the Spirit would open up his heart that he might attend to those things spoken of by this preacher of the Jesus Christ and his Lordship. How thankful we are that his mission, which began, is continuing even this day, and that his mission does continue even through the work of his people, as frail and sinful as we are. So empower this message, we ask, with your Spirit, and bring forth the fruit that you desire from it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the last time we were in this passage, we considered Christ's conditions for his mission here. Christ has a mission, and there were conditions to that. The first condition were really the spiritual needs of the people as he looked out upon them and he saw people who were dis- distressed and, and disquieted. A second condition had to do with the vast number of those people, and we heard Jesus informing his disciples that the harvest is truly plentiful, and yet the third condition we also saw that the number of workers were very low. So he begins to show us that then, how we are to consider the beginning of this mission, and he tells us the beginning of this mission will begin with prayer. So pray for those labors. This morning, I would like for us to consider the calling and the equipping of disciples for the work of Jesus' mission here on this earth. In this historical setting of calling 12 apostles to himself, we also find principles and applications for us corporately, but also for you individually as we are to walk worthy of the vocation or the calling with which each of us have been called. And as we continue in this passage, right on the heels of exhorting us to pray for those labors for the harvest, we are immediately confronted with these 12 men in connection with that prayer. 
And it was these 12 that Jesus would focus on, on his, in his entire uh, three years of earthly ministry. His ministry would continue until the end of the world through those who follow him. And that is you, and that's me. And as we are introduced to this band of 12 in this historical setting, we need to apply principles so that we walk away from here thinking and knowing that the Spirit of God has been addressing us in this context. So the first thing I'd like for us to consider in the calling and the work of these disciples for Christ's mission here on the earth is their call. In verse 1, the scripture says, now when he had called his disciples to him. And this has to do with their call. This is more than a, a mere summons. This was an intensive form of summoning someone to confront them face to face. This was not a generic call or even a general call, but Jesus had prayed all night, from which we see in another one of the Gospels, before he specifically chose these 12, that the Father had already chosen and given to the Son, and he prayed all night to see and discern his Father's will, and then set out to call them specifically. And here are the names of those specific men. And not only is salvation from God very specific and sovereignly decided fact as God chose each one of us before the foundation of the world in Christ, he also has placed us in the time and the place and the family and the church and even in the ministry that each one of us has to serve. Every Christian has a specific calling to fulfill in his earthly ministry here. And it is for that earthly or for that kingdom work that God himself has chosen us. We did not choose him, but he chose us that we might go forth and bear fruit, he reminds us in John 15. He speaks also of what he has done in saving us by grace because you are his workmanship. And he has already foreordained the good works that you should walk in them. And that is why later in that same epistle of Ephesians, he's calling us to walk worthy of this vocation, worthy of the calling to do that which he has assigned to you. So these 12 men were specifically and sovereignly chosen for a task of the ministry that God had for each one of them. And that is also true of everyone here this day. No matter what your position, place, or calling is in the church of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has given you a gift, a calling, a ministry to fulfill. The second thing we need to consider in the calling and the work of the disciples for his mission here on earth is their preparation. It was during those three years that Jesus spent with these 12 men that these 12 men really gave him very little help. It was not because Jesus needed them to minister to him or to help him with the work then. It was really their training, their preparation for what he, they were going to do when he finally ascended up on high and sent the Spirit to them. It was three years 
of hands-on, experiential, intensive preparation and training under the most perfect and best master you could ever have for that job. But on more than one occasion, they, they disagreed with him. They even tried to stand in the way of what he was doing. These were 12 humanly inept, defective group of men that Jesus called. They had very little spiritual understanding. Jesus had to explain the parables to them and even rebuke them. Oh, you of little faith, how much longer will I be with you? Do you still not understand these things? They had very inconsistent ministries. Even the power that, he had, that we see in this passage that he had given to them, they were still very incompetent and did not have consistently the power and their ability to perform their ministry well. When Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down, his disciples are beside them and says, why could we not heal this man or this boy? Oh, you have little faith. These men needed a lot of training. They needed a lot of preparation. And it took some very deliberate and focused time to do so. If you ever have a difficult case of law that you have to go to court, that maybe your entire life savings is dependent on its outcome, you want a good attorney. You don't want someone that just graduated from law school, maybe even the top of his class, you want someone who has experience in the field. If you are an unfortunate soul that has to have brain surgery, I'm not looking here, Bert, but I dare say if you had the choice, you would not want someone just out of internship being the primary surgeon that had to take care of you. And if you are considering Christ's mission here on this earth and ministers he calls who will handle the souls of men and be responsible for their souls to the extent that each one of them has to give an account for it, you don't want a novice, untrained, or inept person handling your eternal soul. How your soul is handled has implications not only for your eternal life, but for your children's outcome and their eternal life and the effectiveness in the kingdom of God. And so there was an intensity of training with the best master for three years, not only an eight to five, but around the clock exposure. Today, there's a tendency not to consider the training of a minister or even a Christian father or even a Christian mother or even a new Christian husband. Into a discipleship that would root them into the culture and the language and the manner of the kingdom of God. It's one of the biggest problems we face today, that the doctrine is the teaching of Jesus, but not only 
Do we have to be highly trained in the doctrine to know these things? But Jesus says we have to teach them to others that they will do them. Do not depreciate the need for discipleship training in your own life, no matter what your position, your calling, or place in ministry in the church is. It took the perfect teacher teacher who was flawless in form and wise in function three years of his life night and day to train this band of inept men to be the disciples that would turn the world upside down and each one of us needs discipleship and the encouragement here is that Jesus took these weak human vessels who kept failing and who even ran at the very moment of his most difficult hour and he made them into something in the end they would become something they would do something these men with a specifically who were specifically and sovereignly chosen would turn the world upside down with one exception and even he was sovereignly chosen as you see as Jesus was betrayed, the one who was the leader of the band, the one who is named first, Peter, who had just not long ago informed Jesus that he would never leave him or forsake him, that he would go even to death after him. He was the one that was running and denying him three times. And yet... It wasn't many days after that, after the Spirit of God had come down upon him and applied all of that training to his life, that he was fast asleep in a jail, in a cell, in a, in a prison. One of his best friends, James, the other fisherman, had already been killed and beheaded. And here he was on the eve or the night in which James was beheaded, and he was fast asleep in his jail cell knowing that his head would be lopped off the next day. Now, I think that's instructive of how far Peter had come in the peace that he had with God as he rested seeing visions of glory that night. But so soundly did he sleep on that night that I dare say none of us could ever sleep that soundly that an angel who was delivering him had to hit him in his side to wake him up and jolt him and get him out of the prison. There was progress. Something radically had changed in Peter's demeanor. He was no longer running. But he was so content in the kingdom that God had called him to. And whether in life or death, he was going to minister for the Lord. That's in great encouragement to us all because God can take us and he can turn men and women who are quite inept and quite frail and quite... Um, whatever we are right now, and he can make us radically different. And he can sometimes do that in short periods of time. Marriages can be different. Children can be different. Lives can become different with some deliberate discipleship and training. Well, the third thing that we consider in the calling and the work of these disciples for Jesus' mission here on this earth is the equipping or the empowering of their ministry. We have here in 
The first verse, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. And there's two considerations I would like for us to think about in this equipping or this empowering. First of all, Jesus empowered them to be successful in what he was calling them and training them to do. I've mentioned to you an episode in my life as a minister earlier on, on when I was having a lot of doubts and struggles. I had finished seminary and I had come out. We had planted this church in Atlanta, Georgia. We chose the place in Atlanta because it was the fastest growing area in the country. It was the fastest growing place of Atlanta. And by all the ways of human demographics, this was the place that you want to put your retail for the coming. This is the place you want to plant your church for a growing, vibrant ministry. This is the place where people are moving and things are happening. And yet things were not going according to human plans. Times were very difficult. I didn't know if we even had a church after about three years of really laboring and intensively calling and knocking on doors in our neighborhood a number of times. Didn't know what to do and didn't know how to even think about the situation. I had given my life to the ministry. I'd made some human sacrifices to get there and went through training that I thought I would never go through. Had informed people before I'm never going to go back to school and there I was not working on math or science problems, but having to read a vast volume, a number of pages, and write things that were just not natural to me. Having to get up and speak in front of people, that was not natural to me. And so I went to a professor who tried to make some sense out of this, and you probably remember what he told me, because I still tell ministers this today. God never calls a man to mock him. He said, Marion, you're in the wilderness right now, but he hasn't called you to mock you. You know, that's, not, that's true. That is true. No matter if you are in the pastoral ministry, if you're a missionary struggling in a wilderness experience, or if you are a church member just struggling with your own calling in how to fit in or what your place is in the kingdom of God, God did not call you for naught. He did not call you to make a mockery of you. He called you so that you might bear forth fruit. The second thing to consider about this empowering that he gave his disciples, this equipping was it enabled them to do the exact same things that Jesus himself did. And that's the point of discipleship. It is to enable and empower God's people to do the same things in whatever sphere of life they find themselves, to do the exact same things as if Jesus would be doing them if he were there, he were here. We see in verses 1 and 8, Jesus empowering and equipping the disciples to cast out demons, to heal all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. And that's what Jesus himself was doing. 
In chapter 7, or verse 7, we see Jesus sending them out to preach the kingdom. Because that's exactly what Jesus himself was doing. Now those miraculous works that Jesus did and that his disciples followed in as well were foundational works to verify the authenticity of the message and the authenticity of the messenger. And when they went out, they never went out in their own strength or power. They only could go out in the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, they made sure that the people understood, these things I do is in the name of Jesus. It was validating him as the Messiah who had come. But those were foundational works. Today, it's the preaching of the kingdom that continues. If Jesus were here among us this day, what would he be doing? He would be preaching the kingdom. He would be telling people of the kingdom. He would be living the kingdom. He would be loving the kingdom. He would be praying to God for the kingdom growth. And that is the work that Jesus continues today through his disciples. Preachers are Jesus' mouthpiece as they speak the gospel and they declare God's name in the midst of the congregation. But there are many other aspects of ministry carried out by every gift that the Spirit has given the body in giving it to individuals for the body, given it to the church, that as He calls you either as a pastor or if He sends you out or if He keeps you here, if He calls you as a minister or He calls you as a member faithfully, You're going to have to take these things into consideration in the very midst of your decision making. What would Jesus be doing now and here? Am I now doing in the midst of my community with the people that I come in contact with what Jesus would be doing if he were here? That's got to come into your decision-making process, into your daily life, into your daily calling as a Christian. That's how you need to consider your life and the decisions and the activity you get involved in. It can be as little as giving a cup of cold water to the least of these of his disciples. That's exactly where the passage is going at the end of this chapter. Don't measure your ministry in terms of giant things or even notable or publishable or publicly noticed things, but in terms of where your heart is and why you are doing what you are doing. What are you wanting these people to see? That should be a big question. You are ministering with your life and activity and your gifts, Christ to them. You want people to see Christ in your life and the way you live and your service to them. In doing God's will, you want them to see the delight that Jesus had in doing his Father's will, as difficult of a lot that that was. You want people to see Christ in you. That's what you want people to see. You don't want people to be writing about you, falling down at your feet, glorifying you. You want people to see Christ. 
The fourth thing we want to consider in the calling and the work of these disciples for his mission here is the kind of people that he calls. What kind of people does Jesus call? We have a list of 12 men before us. There are four such lists given to us in the New Testament. The order of those names, however, are not haphazard in each of those four lists. If we took time to compare those lists this morning, which we won't, here is what we would find. Every one of those four lists of 12 begins with the same name, Peter. A second thing we would find is every list ends with the same name, Judas, except for one of those lists in Acts where he had already committed suicide. A third thing to consider about this list of names is that they are seemingly varied or jumbled in order except for the fifth name and the ninth name, which are always in their same place in all four lists. Philip is always in the fifth position, and James, the son of Alphaeus, is always in the ninth. Now, many commentators who have studied these things out suggest that from this list and the way that the Holy Spirit has given it to us consistently in all four accounts suggests that the apostles were divided into three groups of four. The first group, as we have sometimes referred to as more of his inner circle, we have Peter standing at not only the head of the band of disciples, but the first of this first group. Peter stands as the first among equals of the apostles and disciples. In fact, There is a word there in this list. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these, and he has this term, first Peter. And this word first does not mean that he was called first. It has to do with the awareness of his role. It's the same term that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 1.5 when he references himself as the foremost of sinners. So Peter was not the first disciples chosen, but he, he was the foremost in rank among them. Now, hear me out. All of these 12 apostles were equal in their divine commission, in their authority and power, And one day they will sit on 12 equal thrones. But in terms of function, Peter was first. He was the leader of the apostolic band. And why we see his name mentioned more than any other name in the New Testament except for Jesus. The first group, which we might call the Peter group. The second group, which we might refer to as the Philip group. And the third group, we might refer to as the James group. And we would consider what kinds of people God calls and sends out in his mission work and uses in his kingdom. I'd like for us to consider four categories represented in these three groups. The first category of people that God sends out are people from all different backgrounds. 
In the first group, in verse 2, we have four names. We have Peter and Andrew and James and John. And they all had something in common. They were all fishermen and probably knew each other very well, if not even very close friends. But the fifth man in this list was a tax collector. You know what he did? He collected taxes from everybody else in that group. And not only did he collect taxes from his Jewish brethren, he probably extorted them to some degree in some fashion. But then in verse 4, we read of this man, Simon. Now, Simon was called a zealot. In fact, here, the term Canaanite is used, but that's an Aramaic word that's used for the term zealot. Over in Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel, he's called the zealot. Zealots were a group of politically active Jews who were determined to throw off the yoke of Rome by force. And this likely points out that Simon was a man of intense dedication and perhaps even violent passion. This is the kind of man who in his former state would grab Matthew by the throat and choke him to death and kill him on the spot. You've got to think about the group of these disciples that Jesus is assembling to himself and what he is doing with them. So the men Jesus called to himself are from very broad and very varied backgrounds. You know, that's the Lord's wisdom here. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't take a tax collector and a zealot and put them in a very close company for three years, night and day. And that's what Jesus did. He takes people from all walks of life and all kinds of work and he puts them together and he makes something completely new. The second category of the kinds of people that God calls and sends out are people of vastly different temperaments. And we can see that as we understand some of those disciples that the Bible is not silent with. Peter was quite an impetuous and eager and impulsive man. Yet it was Peter who asked more questions, got to walk on the water, and ran right past John into the empty tomb because of that temperament. In each temperament, we see strengths, but we also see weaknesses, and that's why Peter was also the most rebuked disciple by our Lord. James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, and I don't think it's talking as much about dad as it is the boys. Though sometimes characteristics are handed down from generation to generation. Do you remember that occasion in Luke 9 when Jesus was going toward Jerusalem and he comes through the Samaritan village and it says the people of that village did not receive him? Do you remember what James and John says? It's recorded in verse 54. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did? Fiery temperament. And yet, John was very affectionate. 
it was him of which was described as leaning on the, the breast of our Lord. Philip was a very cognitive and very analytical type. He was just detailed, focused, and focused on all the details. One of those kinds that might drive others crazy. He focused on the details in very practical ways and sometimes missing the entire spiritual truth for the sake of the analytical temperament that he had and he brought to it. Thomas, he was a negative type. When he talks, there's just a negativism to it. In fact, it is from which we get that old saying, doubting Thomas. Now, that should be encouraging for us to realize that this is who God uses. Are you a person that is always sticking your foot in the mouth? God can use you. Are you the melancholy type given over to Sometimes a, a blue funk and are you just the kind that is kind of negative on life and God can use you. Whatever your makeup, whatever your temperament, God can use you. And he specifically calls people of vastly different characteristics this way to use them to show that the wisdom of this world is going to be confounded with foolish things and base things. The third category of the kinds of people that God calls and sends out are the people that we will never know about in this life. What do we know about Bartholomew, Nathaniel? What do we know about him? The only comment that was made about him was in John 141, and we know that he was a very genuine man. Well, what about the leader of that third group, James? Don't know anything about him except for what Mark said. He's James the lesser. What do we mean by lesser? We don't even know what that means. Was he shorter than Zebedee's son? Was he a man of lesser importance or lesser known? We, we just don't know. He's just James the lesser. Only thing we know about Thaddeus was from the question, from one question that he asked the Lord. Apart from that, we don't know anything. The majority of these men in this band of 12, we know very little about. Yet these are the most famous men in the entire world, in all of history. There are more hospitals and missions, and in some cases, more people's names named after these 12, probably 11, these, than any other names given to people on this earth. And the thing is, we know very little about their lives except what Jesus called them to do. This third category of who Jesus calls and the kinds of people he uses are those categories that are just going to remain anonymous. They minister in obscurity. These are missionaries in unknown places, pastors in small villages that we'll never know about in this life, faithful people in churches that do service behind the scenes that are not up in front, that are not known. 
They may never be recognized in this world for the deeds that they have done for Christ, but they are faithful people. Some people have a tendency not to join the band unless they can play first chair. Some people have a tendency not to join the army unless they can become an officer. And perhaps we all have this tendency, including myself. And that can be discouraging to some people, but there's a whole category of people who carry on the work of the kingdom who will never be widely known. But God does. And yet there's a fourth category of a kind of people that the Lord sends out. Difficult as it is for us to understand, but he even sends out unregenerate people. That's that last person in the list. Always in the last person place in the list. Jesus even uses people in the kingdom that he knows what their future sins are going to be. Represented by Judas. Now, we wouldn't do that. We, we would not knowingly send out someone in the ministry that was unregenerate. But with Judas, and Jesus knew that, there was nothing about Judas that tipped him off to any of the others. We see him included in the 12 that were sent out. We see him included in the 12 that were empowered with the ability to cast out demons and to heal sicknesses. And those 12 in Luke's gospel come back to him and says, Lord, Lord, look what we have done. We have done these things that you have said. And Judas was a part of that. He was one of them. The other disciples weren't looking around and saying, hey, why couldn't this guy do it? Hmm. And Jesus uses even some unregenerate people with the right message, and they will do something for his own divine purposes only known to him at the time. Yet we have many people in the church over its entire history and many examples of people that fall into this category. God can even use a donkey to speak truth. Now those that God calls and uses are not necessarily the wise ones of this world. I'm speaking of all categories and every people that he uses for his glory. Because there's not very many mighty that he calls and uses significantly. Not many noble. But he rather chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God does what he does in order that his glory might be seen through his people who minister in the name of Jesus. So if you consider yourself a nobody, that's okay. You're right. But stop berating yourself and get to the work that God has equipped you to do. It's about Christ. It's not about you. And God can powerfully use you 
Because when he calls you, he will equip you. And it is God who will be glorified as his mission moves forward here on this earth. God has called you. He's equipped you, each one of us. And his mission will go forth. And a sub-theme throughout this book is all authority has been given to Christ. Now go and make disciples and teach them whatsoever things I have commanded you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would take this message and encourage those who may be discouraged today, who may be wondering what their mission work is, what their ministry is, where that disciple is who just needs that cup of cold water. We pray for those who are here today but are unregenerate. Perhaps they have the right message. Perhaps they have even spoken the right truth. Perhaps they have done things in your name but do not know you. And we pray the Spirit of God would open up the heart and give faith to see Jesus and to give their lives this day willingly to be used mightily in a willing way. Lord, I ask that you would look out upon this congregation and look at our children who are being born, the children who are growing up. Would you call any of these to the ministry? Would you call any of these to go into difficult lands where they will never be known in this life, but to bring the good news of the gospel to people who need it, to people who will hear it, to people who will obey it. Lord, I pray that you'd be working in our children and our young adults, that you would impress upon them according to your spirit's gifting in their lives fanning the flames of their desires for the kingdom in the area which will be and is according to their giftedness. And we pray that you would give us as a church great wisdom in equipping and discipling those in every member here for the work of the ministry that you have given to them. So if there's one struggling with knowing how to fit in or what to do, We pray that we would have your mind to work together to see your ministry flourish and your mission go forth. So we commit all of these things into your hands and to your care. In Jesus' name, amen.